Today, I get to wrap up a sermon series we've been in called Busy Jesus. Busy Jesus, because life just keeps coming, right? Life is unrelenting. There are so many things to take care of, so many places to be, so many opportunities we want to take advantage of, so many experiences we want to, 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 to have, and, and so many goals we want to achieve, and so many expectations from others on what I should be doing with my life and my time, and it, it can be exhausting. We all feel this. We all feel busy. The question is, though, are we busy with the right things? Are we busy with the best things? Because if we aren't careful, we can fly through life, running from one thing to the next and miss the things that matter most. Kondo said it well a couple of weeks ago. In this, in this series, we want to see from the life of Jesus that busy should never bully us out of what matters most, because what matters most, matters most no matter what. It can take a second to sort of untwist that sentence, but what matters most, if it really matters most, it will matter most no matter what. And we've seen this in the life of Jesus. You know, there, were, there was always room in his day for the things that mattered most. There were unbelievable demands from the crowd and expectations from the disciples and, and, and challenges from the religious leaders, but Jesus always had room in his day for the things that mattered most. The first week, we saw that even when life was crazy, Jesus never let the priority of prayer get pushed off his calendar. He was never too busy to spend time with his father. And then we looked at Luke 4, 18 to 19, where Jesus read, read this from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus read this in the synagogue to people who had gathered to worship God. And after he read it, he said, that's talking about me. That is what I'm here for. Those are my kingdom priorities. I'm here with good news for you if you are in need. I'm here with freedom for those in bondage, relief for the hurting, sight for the blind. I'm here with God's favor, his free forgiveness and love for the most undeserving of sinners. That's what Jesus said he was here to do, and those are the things that mattered most to him. And as we've worked through this series, we've seen the way Jesus spent his time prove that those are the things that mattered most to him. Even though there was an adoring crowd on one shore with Jesus, he got in a boat and went way out of his way to set a man free from an army of demons because convenience isn't what mattered most to Jesus. And when everyone else saw an irrelevant, annoying, blind beggar, Jesus stopped and gave him his sight back because who our world says is worth our time and compassion doesn't matter most. And then when everyone else saw someone that disgusted them, someone to despise, Jesus saw someone he must have dinner with. And Zacchaeus, he was dramatically changed. Because our reputation and what our people, who our people tell us we're supposed to hate doesn't matter most. The crowd, his followers, the religious leaders, they didn't understand why Jesus gave his time to the people he did and to the things he did because they didn't understand the priorities of the kingdom of God. 
But Jesus was never too busy for what mattered most, even when it was inconvenient, even when other people didn't like it. Today we're going to look at a passage that takes that to a completely different level, one where Jesus shows that what matters most matters most no matter what, even when we're hurting. If you have a Bible with you today, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 23. We'll pick up in verse 32. Luke 23, 32. Verses, they'll also be up on the screen as we go along. But if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. We would love to give you one as a gift, as a free gift. So just stop by guest services afterwards and we will give you a copy of the Bible to take home so you can read it because we believe that there is power in these words because they point to Jesus. So in Luke 23, we find ourselves on the hill where Jesus is about to be executed. The night before, Jesus was betrayed by a friend and abandoned by everyone else. He was falsely accused, beaten, mocked, and whipped 39 times. The crowd turned on him, calling for his execution. And even though he was found innocent, he was given a death sentence. And with that, we, find, we, we come to Luke 23, 32, which says, this. Two other men, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Crucifixion. Crucifixion was a punishment that was reserved for the worst of the worst. Jesus is here being crucified with two men who are referred to as criminals. Now, calling them criminals, it's a bit of an understatement. Other places where, where somebody that's described this way, it, it kind of lays out some of the things that they did. And, and it was often used to describe people who would ambush others on the road, stab them to death, and steal their stuff. These were cold-hearted killers. They're murderers. One on each side of Jesus. In crucifixion, it was brutal. Like nails through your wrists and feet, forcing you to push up off of those nails in order to take a breath. Every time pushing gets those nails just to get a breath, crucifixion was brutal. One Roman who lived shortly before Jesus wrote that the cross was, quote, the most cruel and terror-inspiring way to die. And that was on purpose. Rome wanted the threat of crucifixion to strike fear in the heart of anyone they came up against in battle or ruled over. They purposely made it as painful as possible. This is the death Jesus is experiencing when he said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. In those three words, we hear what mattered most to Jesus, even as he's nailed to the cross. Jesus was still proclaiming God's favor. As he said in Luke 4, still proclaiming God's favor. In the middle of this torturous death, Jesus is holding out forgiveness to the ones who put him on that cross. But Jesus' words don't seem to move anyone on the ground. 
He prays for their forgiveness and they play games to see who gets to keep his clothes. And then they begin to mock him. They pile insult on top of injury. Continue on here in verse 35. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The rulers mocking Jesus here really isn't much of a surprise. These are the religious leaders that have had it out for Jesus for quite a while now. He saved others. He said God's on his side. Well, now's the time to prove it. Save yourself. Oh, I guess you ran out of miracles. Should have saved one. You could really use it right now. The soldiers get in on the mocking too. Their taunts were pretty similar to the religious leaders. If you are who you say you are, then hey, save yourself. Even one of the criminals being crucified next to Jesus chimes in. In the middle of his own agony, he found the strength to, quote, hurl insults at him. These words, thick with sarcasm, are, aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the one supposed to save us? Then why don't you? To be honest, they weren't very original in their taunts. They all basically said the same thing. You said you were God's chosen one. If you're so special, if he loves you so much, if you're so strong, why don't you save yourself? They mocked Jesus with the same taunt, but in doing so, they all made the same mistake. They mistook Jesus' Jesus's inaction for inability. In fairness, who could imagine anyone choosing to die on a cross? This was beyond absurd. Like, so in, in their minds, if Jesus could have saved himself, he would have. And if we were there, we would be thinking the exact same thing. But Jesus understood that what matters most matters most no matter what. Even if no matter what included the cross. So Jesus here, he's not on that cross because of inability. Jesus could have changed the events of that day any time he wanted to. He simply chose not to. In Matthew 26, a matter of hours before Jesus is crucified, he's in the middle of getting arrested when this happens. Matthew 26, 51. One of Jesus' companions, it was, it was Peter, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the ear of the high priest, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? It must happen in this 
way, getting arrested and beaten and dying on a cross. This is, this is not a maybe for Jesus. This was not an optional thing for Jesus. It was a must. That's what he said. It must happen in this way to make full payment for sin, to, to overcome the power of death, to crush the devil once and for all. The cross was a must. It is what mattered most. Saving you doesn't happen without the cross, so I must die. This must happen. Peter did not understand that, and so he tried to save Jesus. But Jesus tells him to put his sword away because the Prince of Peace has no need for his weapons. I mean, think about what Peter has seen so, like, over the previous three years. Peter's seen demons beg Jesus for mercy. He's seen nature itself. He's seen he has seen storms obey Jesus' command. He's seen dead people come to life at the sound of Jesus' voice. You think Jesus needs your weapons there, Peter? This is the king of heaven. All Jesus has to do is call on his father, and more than 12 legions of angels would be ready to end any fight immediately. Is that a precise number? I, I doubt it, but a, a, legion, a Roman legion was about 5,000 soldiers. So let's take Jesus literally for just a second here, just, just to understand what he's saying. We're talking about 60,000 angels that at once would obey any order Jesus gave. 60,000 angels. So what does that mean? It means that every second of that day, Jesus chose. With one call to his father, Jesus could have rearranged everyone's calendar with 60,000 angels. But he chose to keep heaven's army on the sideline while he suffered. Jesus chose to keep going because this, because dying for the sins of the world is what mattered most. Let, let's sit here for a minute. Let's let this sink in. I mean, think about all the things that Jesus chose to endure because something mattered more than bringing an end to his suffering. He was betrayed by one friend and abandoned by the rest, and Jesus chose to keep going. He was arrested and beaten, and Jesus chose to keep going. Lie after lie after lie, false accusation after false accusation, and Jesus chose to keep going. The crowd turned on him, cheering for him to be executed, and Jesus chose to keep going. The first time the whip tore into his back, Jesus chose to keep going. The second time the whip tore into his back, Jesus chose to keep going. The third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, 39 times Jesus was whipped. All he had to do was say, enough, and 60,000 angels would have descended from heaven and ended it. But 39 times Jesus chose to keep going no matter what. Every time the hammer fell, driving the nails through his flesh, Jesus chose to keep going. Taunted by the leaders, soldiers, and a man being crucified with him, and Jesus chose to keep going. Hanging on that cross for six hours, each breath more excruciating than the last, Jesus chose to keep going. The weight of the sin of the world placed upon him, and Jesus chose to keep going no matter what. 60,000 angels at the edge of heaven, ready to storm earth. The moment that Jesus called for them, 
60,000 angels just waiting for Jesus to give the order. One word and Jesus could have stopped his suffering. One word and his mockers would have been silenced. One word and everyone would see how wrong that they were and how powerful and majestic he was. Jesus could have called on his father to unleash heaven's army on his mockers, accusers, and executioners. But instead, Jesus called on his father to show them mercy. Father, forgive them. He could have called for their destruction, but he called for their forgiveness. Father, forgive them. We can't wrap our minds around how incredible of a display of love this is. Jesus could have pronounced judgment, but proclaimed the Lord's favor instead. Indescribable pain and suffering was not enough to change Jesus' priorities. Pain was not a reason to hit the pause button on what mattered most. What mattered most when things were good is still what matters most now that things are bad to Jesus. What mattered most, mattered most, no matter what. Even if it included suffering. Now, to be clear, when Jesus chose to keep going in spite of all the mistreatment, in spite of all the pain, he didn't choose to keep going so that he could keep suffering. He chose to keep going because his mission mattered more than relief from that suffering. The whole day, he was faced with a choice. What matters most? And he made the same choice every single time. Jesus put kingdom priorities over comfort priorities. Kingdom priorities over comfort priorities. Every single time. How how do we do with that? How about us? When push comes to shove, what wins? Kingdom priorities or comfort priorities? When we can't have both, what what do we put first? Showing and sharing the love of Jesus or, or our comfort? As Americans, we are really bad at putting comfort to second to anything. We're terrible at it. We love everything to be just so. We, we have our AC set to that nice 71 or whatever it is that we like. We have good natured debates about whether 71 or 73 feels better, right? We want our chairs to be comfy and in just the right position so that we can see the TV without a glare. We want our food to be just the right temperature. So when hardship comes, we struggle to keep kingdom priorities at number one. So much of our world is, is we're told comfort's so important, comfort's so important that we, 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 we can grab onto that and make that the, the, the thing that matters most to us no matter what. Now, I, I don't say this lightly because I, I know that some of you are in really hard places right now. I know some of you are going through it. 
For some, it's, it's something you've chosen to take on. It's, it's a commitment to care for an aging parent or, or a child. And, or, or it's this, a service opportunity you got excited about. Or, or it's a job at a new company. You knew it would be a challenge. But you never dreamed that it would get this hard. You never dreamed that it would go sideways. You thought it was going to be great, but now you're reeling. You don't, you don't know what to do next, and it hurts. For others, though, it's, it's an unwelcome circumstance that's invaded your life, and, and, and you're struggling with it. Someone betrayed you. They deeply hurt you. Or, or you just lost your job, or the doctor confirmed that your worst fears are true. Or someone you love is destroying their life and there's nothing you can do about it. You never asked for this. You didn't want this. You, you, you see this, you're like, God, please take this away. When those things happen, they are a test of our priorities. What really matters most to us? Does my focus shift from kingdom priorities to comfort priorities? Do I retreat from God's mission when life is hard? Or do I, I choose to keep going no matter what, in spite of the suffering? Because if God's kingdom matters most no matter what, then that means I must put it first. Now let me clarify once again. This doesn't mean that you have to stay in, in, in that job if it is a terrible situation. Your boss is demeaning and you're forced to work a crazy number of hours. Look, you can change jobs if you like. That doesn't derail God's mission, right? That's a wisdom question, not a right and wrong question. But until the time comes that you walk out that door, until the time comes you leave that job, the priority is not to keep your head down and gut it out, hoping that the boss doesn't come after you. That is not the number one priority. The priority is to show and share the love of Jesus even to your boss. If you're suffering from chronic pain, by all means, go to, go to a doctor. Go to doctors and try to get relief. But while you're there, bring the hope of Jesus with you. I'm not saying, and God's not wanting you to, to, to not look for relief from your pain. The call, though, is that we need to put, we need to be faithful to what matters most, even in the middle of, of hardship and suffering. And this is so hard because at the risk of sounding like Captain Obvious here, suffering hurts. We feel pain intensely. It's so close. It weighs on us physically and mentally and emotionally. There's this ever-present pressure in our chest from the stress of it. We wake up in the middle of the night and we can't fall back asleep because we can't stop thinking about it. We can't stop stressing about it. And meanwhile, the mission God called us to, so often it feels so out there, so far removed, so, so intangible, so, so distant. And so our focus can drift. No, it's not usually, I don't think, a conscious choice, really. It's more that we let our pain distract us from the mission God has called us to. So our focus turns inward, and we spend all of our time scouring the internet for solutions to what will bring us relief. Or maybe we look for something else, something that will numb or take 
take the pain off of our minds. Like we binge watch show after show after show. Or a bottle and a half of wine a night. Something to try to get this pain out of my mind, out of my life. And whether we mean to or not, finding relief from the struggle becomes the thing that matters most instead of God's mission. But really, I don't think there's a more powerful time for us to show and share the love of Jesus than when we are struggling and hurting. And that's because often when we find ourselves in these hard places, we find ourselves next to other people in hard places. People who are struggling, people who are looking for hope. Hope that we can offer them in Jesus that doctor's office that you have a dozen appointments at over the next few months. Someone there needs to hear that Jesus has overcome the grave. That support group that you're going to because you're struggling. Someone there needs to hear about the kindness and forgiveness of Jesus. Teachers, that kid, yep, the one that just popped into mind, that kid, the one that's made this such a difficult year so far. He needs someone to show him unconditional love and take joy in him. Now, if it was up to us, these things, these are things that we would not have on our calendar ever. Having to deal with these hard situations, we would never want to. These things are, are complicated and messy and scary. But if we start with kingdom priorities instead of comfort priorities, these bad situations turn into opportunities to show and share the love of Jesus with people. Those things we want so badly to be able to, to take off our calendar, things that we, we never want to have to deal with ever again, those are places that we begin to see as God's direction towards people that he loves, that need to hear about the hope and joy in him, that need to hear about his love. And we can be strengthened for this task because we know that God is with us in the middle of our pain. It doesn't always feel that way, but he is near to us when we're brokenhearted. He is our ever-present help in times of trouble. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles. He is the God who promises that whatever suffering we are going through now, it does not compare to the glory and the good that he has for us someday. And so we can carry on putting his mission first, trusting God that he's not going to forget us or overlook us. As we work towards what matters most. And I believe that as we prioritize God's mission, no matter what we are going through, we will see God do some incredible things. He will move in some miraculous ways. And we actually see that with Jesus on the cross in the next few verses. 
Luke 23, starting 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Yesterday, this man would have been in the running for the title of least likely to end up in heaven. Remember, this is a stone-cold killer sentenced to death, locked up in a Roman prison. The only people he's going to interact with from, from that cell until he is dead are Roman soldiers. They're not going to point to hope in God. Of anyone in the world, this is the least likely person to end up in heaven. But then Jesus got arrested. But then Jesus kept going. Then Jesus continued to choose what was most important. And think about what this man witnessed as he hung on the cross next to Jesus. Now, he knows better than anyone the pain that Jesus is experiencing. He's probably been whipped. He's probably been beaten. He feels the nails in his own hands. He knows the searing pain that comes with each breath. He hears the jeers. And actually, the other gospels say that at first, he was mocking Jesus too. But then he overhears Jesus pray, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Jesus stayed true to the mission he had from the beginning, even through his suffering. And something about that pierced this man's soul. He couldn't shake it, and it changed his eternity. He, he asked Jesus for mercy, saying, I, I deserve to die like this. But Jesus, you don't. Please remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus replied, be assured, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Even in agony, even while paying the penalty for the sins of the world, Jesus, Jesus made time to declare the Lord's favor to this man who definitely did not deserve it. Just a few hours later, this man died. This man died. And he found himself in heaven, in paradise. Agony, a thing of the past, a distant memory. Think about how miraculous that is. I'm borrowing this from a preacher named Alistair Begg, but can you imagine this man's first conversation in heaven? 
He dies and he's in heaven and, and, and right off the bat, he, he bumps into an angel and they start with some you know, small talk. Like, hey, welcome. You know, they're, they're chatting and the angel asks, like, so, uh, so what did you do for a living? Uh, well, I killed people and stole from them. Okay. Uh, well, this is heaven, so you must have really turned your life around, huh? Mm, no. Actually, I never really had the chance to. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, 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 I'm confused. How, how, what did you do to get in here? How did you slip through? I, I, I don't know. Wait, wait, sorry, what do you mean you don't know? Like, how, how did you get into heaven? I don't know. The man on the center cross said I could come. The man on the center cross said I could come. This man who hung on the cross next to Jesus is as undeserving as they get, and he readily admits it. He knows he's made a mess of his life. He acknowledges that he deserves to be dying this excruciating death. The terrible things he's done are more than you could count. The number of good deeds he did for Jesus, zero. The number of days he has followed Jesus, zero. How much does he understand about why Jesus was dying on the cross? Zero. And how much did that matter? Zero. Because it wasn't about what this man knew, it wasn't about what this man did, it was about the fact that the man on the center cross said he could come. That paradise was open to him. That heaven was his. And it's the same thing for you and it's the same thing for me. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what we know. Jesus, the man on the center cross, is inviting us to come. He is our only hope. The man who choose, chose to stay on the center cross said we could come. He's inviting each and every one of us. He's inviting everyone who will come to enjoy eternal life with him. Jesus is offering the Lord's favor, free forgiveness to anyone who asks. Anyone. Remember, this is a murderer in his last moments of life. He wasn't too bad, and it wasn't too late. And Jesus was quick to receive him. Jesus was happy to receive him and give him forgiveness and mercy and grace and acceptance and love. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made. It's, it's not too late to say, Jesus, I need you. There is nothing that you have done, nothing you have done that would keep him from saying, you're forgiven. Come enjoy life.
That invitation is still open. Jesus is still calling. Jesus is still calling each and every one of us to come to him where we can find mercy and grace and forgiveness. Jesus has opened wide heaven's gates and said, come all, one and all. You may be ignored. You may be insignificant in the world, but I want you to come to me. You might be despised for the things that you've done. I want you to come to me, to be with me forever. Many of us in this room have, have responded to that call and cried out to Jesus and said, Jesus, I need you. I need your mercy. But I'm sure there are those in this room who haven't yet said that. And I'm inviting you, Jesus is inviting you to call on him today. That this might be the day of salvation. That this might be the day where your sins are wiped clean. And Jesus says, yes, you will. You will assuredly, truly be with me forever in paradise. I would invite you to respond to that call this morning. You don't need to know anything other than to say, Jesus, I need you. That's it. There's nothing more than that. Because each and every one of us only have one hope, and it is him. Each and every one of us needs him. God, that is our cry this morning. That we need you. We need what your son has done for us. God, we thank you that he did not get thrown off course. We thank you that he continued on with what mattered most, no matter what. That he saw us and chose to endure. God, we cry out to you this morning that we need you. We need you for your forgiveness, we need you for your grace, and we need you to strengthen us, to continue to put what matters most first, no matter what. Because God, we understand our own weakness. We understand that we are prone to put our comforts first instead of your kingdom first. So God, forgive us for the ways that we've done that. And strengthen us to continue on in what matters most, no matter what. God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for being with us in the middle of all that life throws. And we praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.